Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. This is The Political Scene, and I'm David Remnick. If you came of age watching Spike Lee movies, as I did, or joints as he likes to call them, you quickly became familiar with his public persona. He was ambitious, uncompromising, and outspoken, and as far as his critics were concerned, maybe a little too outspoken. But Spike Lee was a groundbreaking voice, especially for black audiences. Some of us, we got to see the richness and complexity of our lives portrayed on screen for the very first time watching his films. His 40 years of filmmaking include classics like Malcolm X and Do the Right Thing, several documentaries including a couple about Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, and recent favorites like Black Klansmen and Five Bloods. And he's still making movies destined to stir the pot. The subject of his latest project? Former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick. Classic Spike Lee. Thank you, thank you. Can I say something first before we start? It's Brooklyn in the house. Oh, now we can start. David Remnick sat down the other day with Spike Lee at the New Yorker Festival. They began talking about Spike's father, the bassist and composer Bill Lee, died at age 94 this year. In his time, your dad was the bass player that everybody wanted to play with. It's an amazing thing. Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday, Aretha Franklin. He played on It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, with one Bob Dylan, John, John Lee Hooker, everybody. He was also... Uh, first album, Gordon Lightfoot. First album by Simon and Garfunkel. He's on Puff the Magic Dragon. He's on bass with Peter, Paul, Mary. So my father was the top folk bassist, but his bass, his bass I mean, his thing was jazz. And... When Bob Dylan went electric, everybody went electric. And, and people wanted to continue to work with my father, but he didn't want to play electric bass. He wanted to continue playing upright. Yeah, upright. He was so, a traditionalist. So my mother, who every weekend used to shop at Bloomingdale's and Saks Fifth Avenue, that had to stop. Because <laughs> there was no money coming into the house because my father refused to play electric bass. Her mother had to work. She started teaching at St. Anne's in Brooklyn Heights. What was your relationship like with your father? It got, it got complicated at times. Talk about that. Growing up and seeing the way my mother was working, coming home and cooking and cleaning for five crazy kids, and my father just be at this piano and just write music. But it wasn't until later that I saw that uh, you know, this is his life. You know, he was not going to play music that uh, he didn't want to play. It was great that we were able to work together. And, and that, that conviction he had, you know, I, I've, I've taken a lot of that, that some things just can't compromise. What was it like to work with him on, on films? He did the music for, I don't know, at several. He did right? all my student films, and she used to have it, School Days, Do the Right Thing, and Mo Better Blues. What happened was is that my father did not believe in technology. So when you're doing a score, all right, this scene, Daddy, is two minutes long. 
And only two minutes long, yeah. And then we, we go in the studio, it's like, what are you doing? So that's when I had to bring in Terrence Blanchard, the great composer. But Terrence Blanchard played with Branford Marsalis on School Days, on Do the Right Thing, and Mobetta uh, Meta Blues, when you see Denzel playing, that's Terrence playing, you see uh, Wesley nice playing horn, that's, that's, mm-hmm. that's uh, Branford Marsalis. Mm-hmm. More better blues. Well, tell me what it was like growing up in your house. Was was the discussion of music and art at forefront? Anybody has seen the film Crooklyn? That is that is it's autobiographical. So that was uh, that was our house. Clinton! What? Don't answer me. What? Turn the goddamn TV off. I'm watching the Knicks. I don't care what it is. No TV on a school night. She can scream what she wants. I'm watching this game. Turn it off. Ma, it's just a game. Who is that? It wasn't me, mommy. The on the campus of University of Maryland. We we lived in a very artistic household, so thank God our parents were like, you know, they said whatever you want to do, just be good at it. So there was wasn't like steering us away from the arts. And I think a lot of times, when it comes to the arts, parents kill their children's dreams because art, you know, we're not spend all this money so you could make pot, pottery, you know, or, or a poet or something. You know, you'd be a lawyer, doctor, whatever you want. So it was just natural that uh, we would be in art, but it doesn't, it wasn't drawn in our head. My mother was taking me to movies a little. My father hated Hollywood movies, so that was my mother's date. What would she take you to see? What first excited you on the screen? James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> my mother was a big... Sean Connery loved James Bond. Who are you? My name is Pussy Galore. I must be dreaming. Was there, do you remember what movies started that were maybe a little on the higher on the food chain artistically than James Bond? Not that there's anything wrong with Goldfinger, but that you saw and you said, ah, that's something I might want to do. That didn't happen to that didn't happen until college. Went to Mars College in Atlanta, Georgia. That I had to choose a major. So I chose mass communications. was film, TV, print journalism, and radio. That takes in a lot of area. Mass communications. <laughs> but uh, film is what uh, I, I feel film chose me, not the other way around. But, you know, for write, if you want to be a writer, forget the economics of it, you need a pencil. To be a film director, you need a whole bunch of other people. You need equipment. You need money. You need backing, and you need to be, to some degree, you need to be Napoleon. You've got to lead all these people. What in your personality drew, drew you to being a film director as opposed to a, a, a novelist or a poet or a painter or whatever? Why did you express yourself through that? Because film encompasses all those things you just nailed, that you just talked about. I was, uh, did my student films undergrad, and I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, and, and I knew that that whole thing of move, driving out to L.A., flying to L.A., and working way up for the mailroom, 
doesn't work for black people. So I'm going to be in. I'm going to go to film school. Yeah, and and what, what at NYU Film School? Who are you listening to? What are you watching that's starting to startle you and help you become you? What 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 are you watching and listening to? Everything, and that's I really thank NYU Graduate Film School for introducing me to world cinema because. A lot of the great filmmakers, you know, even though I've seen some samurai films, I didn't know Kurosawa made them. So it was an introduction to world cinema. I know what the Hollywood stuff is, but once I was introduced to different ways of thinking, different ways of making a film, not just the Hollywood system. I think A.O. Scott said that She's Gotta Have It and Jim Jarmusch's first movie really set off the independent film movement. for me, Jim Jarmusch is my hero because I checked that equipment to him. And so, even though Scorsese went to NYU and Oliver Stone, they weren't there when we were there. Mm-hmm. So when someone you know, you check equipment to, makes it, then it's doable. So tell me about breaking through. Getting She's Gotta Have It was made for $150,000? $175,000. Where'd you get the money? Well, I was doing crowdfunding before there was crowdfunding. <laughs> I had a pen in hand, postcards, and a stamp. Remember postcards? When was the last time you licked a stamp? And I just, postcards, everybody knew to help me get money. But what we did was... In other words, you're hitting up your parents' friends? Anybody knew. Take me through the stages of getting through the, from the imagination to into a movie theater, and all of a sudden I go to a theater and I see, wow, this is something absolutely new. Well, is it-, it, it almost killed me, but I had great, great people around me who believed in this dream. One of my classmates, I went to John Dewey High School, Coney Island, and uh, his mother just died, and in insurance he got $10,000. And he, he said, take it. I said, no guarantee, take it. And once the film became a hit, he bought a brownstone and four green. <laughs> and it's still collecting checks. And that film came out in 1986. <laughs> so he got a brownstone, a very good, 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 he good price. He certainly did. He certainly did. And where does this story come from? Had you been writing it through she films? Have it. Yeah, she's got she's to have it. it really, the, the concept really comes from Rashomon, the great film by the great Japanese director, Akira Kurosawa, where a rape happens and you see all these different characters get their version of that incident. And this is three, want to flip it, so three men speak to the camera and get their version of who they think Nola Dawn is, who's having a sexual relationship, all three, all these three men at the same time. What about Nola Dawn? What do you want to know? I thought she was a freak, you know, freaky dicky. You ask why I continue to see her? I'm not crazy. You, I, I, I think your career exploded even more with Do the Right Thing. Okay. Mookie! So you know what? How come you got no brothers up on the wall? Man, ask Sal, right? Hey, hey, Sal, how come you got no brothers up on the wall here? 
You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. You can put your brothers and uncles and nieces and nephews, your stepfather, stepmother, whoever you want. You see? But this is my pizzeria. American Italians on the wall only. Take it easy, man. Huh? you. Hey. Yeah, that might be fine, Sal, but uh, you, you own this. Rarely do I see any American Italians eating in here. All I see is black folks. So since we spend much money here, we do have some set. By that time... That was what, my third film. Right, and 1989. And by that time, was it a hell of a lot easier to get financing, or were you finding Hollywood still a tough nut to break? It, it was easier, but I still can't get everything I want to make now. So, I mean, Even unless now. you're... Yeah, unless you're Spielberg or Christopher Nolan, and they're not just to give you a blank check. But I, I'm not complaining. I'm in my fourth decade as a filmmaker, and I'm not slowing down, not, ha, not stopping. Have you, you've talked in the past about racism in Hollywood and other institutions. Has that changed at all in Hollywood? And if so, what's her, to what degree? Well, there's many more people, people of color, that are working in Hollywood today in front of and behind the camera, but it's still not necessarily, you know, an even playing field. So the struggle continues. Did you feel a special burden because of very, there were so few visible black directors in the 80s? Did you, is, what, is, is there a special no, weight on your no, shoulder? In, I, some, I, I, in terms of representation? No, I in terms it was of, a privilege because I was in a position to get people careers. I mean, a whole bunch of people came through 40 acres in front of and behind the camera. And I remember we were getting ready to do Malcolm X and the Teamsters at that point, had no black Teamsters. So I had a meeting with the guy. I'm not going to say his name. I said, you got to get some black Teamsters. He says, we don't have any. Well, I said, you know what? Tomorrow, the food of Islam is going to be driving trucks. But they found some black Teamsters. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They didn't want to mess with the fruit. Do the Right Thing was not nominated for Best Picture Award. And in oh, the we end... Got, whoa, whoa. What? Danny got it for Best Supporting Actor. Yes, yes, indeed. Lost out to Denzel for Glory. And I got it for uh, so screenplay. screenplay. Dead Poor Society. But it's not for Best Picture. And what Who won, knows? Well, who's know what film won Best Picture that year? I do. <laughs> Driving Miss Driving Daisy. Driving Miss Motherfucking Daisy. <laughs> What did you feel at that very moment? Well, let's move many years ahead. Black Klansman. What, we got nominated for Best Picture that, for that, but what film won that year? Green Book. What? Green Book. Yeah, I was like, damn, every time somebody's driving somebody, I lose. <laughs> When you see one of your films visually, they're incredibly distinctive. And that's not just me. That's the great cinematographer I've had to work over the years, too. So there's something called a a double dolly shot. Double dolly shot. I did not invent it. Okay, so double dolly shot, for those of you who don't know, but if you, if you saw it and I was smart enough to have a film of it, you'd know it right away. It's when the center figure is, is kind of still and the background is moving very quickly and it's very disorienting. They're floating. And what is it? Tell me about it technically and what are you using it for? What is it, what is it meant to do emotionally to the viewer? And you see it in I, Malcolm X. It, I, I mean, it's in a lot of films. Um, uh, more well, better Ern, Ern, Ernest, Ernest, again, Ernest Dickerson. 
my brother, fellow classmate, great cinematographer. We were young out of film school, and so we're just doing film school shit. <laughs> and then showing off. And then Ernest and I said, you know what? We're, 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 we're out of film school. We're out of NYU. If we use this shot, it has to make sense. It has to be motivated. True story. So we're getting ready to do Malcolm X. And I became somewhat friends with the late, great Dr. Betty Shabazz, Malcolm's widow. And she told me that she felt that her husband, Malcolm, knew he was going to be assassinated when he went to Audubon Bone, he was going to be a martyr. So when she told me that, I said, Ernest, but we got to find a place. So then it hit me. We have a scene where Malcolm, played by the great Denzel Washington. <laughs> D, he's going to all my ballroom. I said, that's where we got to do it. And then I said, we got to use that Sam Cooke song, A Change Is Coming. And so that song, coupled with the circumstances and the double A shot, is the best use of it so far that we've done. But we don't, we don't, we, when we do it now, it has to be motivated. Sparingly. Yes. Sparingly. Are there any other signature moves that you've either used or abandoned or you, can, or you, or you think of as part of your uh, film vocabulary? Uh, we have a lot of times people speaking to the camera. Uh, double cuts where we repeat, like we might have somebody, if people hug, we might see them hug twice. Mm-hmm. Just try to be innovative with the camera and keep the camera moving and not just stand there. Mm -hmm. Do you find it harder as you get older to come up with new stories, new material, or does life keep coming at you hard enough so that that your well is full? No, I have a wealth, a plethora of ideals. It's the money. You know, you gotta gotta finance that stuff, so. That's that's the big burden. Yes, and uh, my dream project is a film called Save Us Joe Lewis, which I co-wrote with the great Bud Schilberg. Bud Schilberg won an Oscar for On the Waterfront. Bud Schilberg is inducted into the Boxing Hall of Fame as a writer. And I got to know Bud. He introduced me to Kazan. And, and Bud was at the two Joe Lewis Schmelin fights in Yankee Stadium. So this screenplay is about the relationship between Joe Lewis and Max Schmel, who was not a Nazi, but he was on the tyranny of a uh, Hitler. In, in, in your in your vision of it, who would play those two actors, who, the, those two roles, Schmeling and Lewis? I don't want to jinx it, but I've been. But I co-wrote it with Bud, and for two years, Bud would call me every day. I mean, he was on his deathbed. He would call me, and what kept him alive was. The ideal that we're going to make this film together. And he was a Spike. Yeah, that, you know, you read, you, you read Bud? I knew him. Yeah. Spike, did you get the money yet? I'm working on it, but I'm working on it. So I made a promise to Bud on his deathbed, we're going to get this film made one day. Now, you've been doing a lot of documentaries. I've 
was honored to have the privilege for it to briefly be in a couple of them, one about New York City and one that's forthcoming about Colin Kaepernick. And you do this thing, I, it, it's, it's really not disconcerting, but nerve wracking. You put somebody in a chair and the camera is about two and a half feet from your face. You were great. And you're, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Right now you're doing Colin Kaepernick. How many hours of footage do you have? Just interviews? Just over it, yeah. Hundreds of hours. And it's going to break down to what? Five parts. Of each an hour. Each an hour and a half, an hour and change. So who sits there and goes through over and over? That's all you? How, how collaborative No, what I do is that? is that I look at the dailies with the editors, and then they mm -hmm. go off and mm -hmm. do what they got to do, and they show, show it to me. But it's, you have to... You got to put the work in. You can't fake the funk. And uh, this documentary is taking a long time. Why is that? The story keeps going. He's not coming to the Jets, I hate to tell you. He might not ever play again. <laughs> this is the most important question I can possibly ask you. Why don't you organize a team to buy the Knicks? They're not for sale. Yeah, you could do it and make them better because I got to tell you, I can't take it anymore. I don't know how you do this. We haven't this. won in 50 years. The last year was the 72-73 season. season. But we'll be good this year. Why are we going to be good this year again? What did, the Brooklyn, what did the Brooklyn faithful always do? What did the flapper, the flapper's faithful always Wait say? Wait till next Wait year. Wait till next year. <laughs> well, this is the year. This is it. This, this is, is the it. year. Uh -huh. From your lips to God's ears, I want to ask you some collaboration questions. Denzel Washington, what is the quality that you find in him that, uh, and you bring it out in so many different films? Why is he as great with you? Not that he wasn't great in Equalizer 3, which I loved. Hey, I, I got nothing to do with that. <laughs> uh, Denzel, in my opinion, is the greatest living actor today. You could feel his power, his sensitivity, his humanity. And he just the way he carries himself. Like, he's not fucking around. And if you're, if you're on the set... Whether you're a boom, whatever, I think you're not doing your job, he's gonna let you know. He lets you know? Yeah. How? Spike. <laughs> That's good. That was good. But you know how I, you know how I direct Denzel? All right, Denzel, what do you want to do next? All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> but he's uh, the GOAT. You're going to do another one with him? I would love to. You got anything in mind? Not yet, but uh, we're, we're, we're talking. Is he too old to be Joe Lewis? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Played Hurricane Carter. That's right. How long can you do this? You look at Scorsese's... Kurosawa's 86. Yeah. I'm, I'm 66. Is that the idea? I got at least 20. I got to get the Kurosawa. Gotcha. All right. Got to. Spike Lee, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. David Remnick, give it up for David, give it up for David. Filmmaker Spike Lee, talking with David Remnick at the New Yorker Festival.
And if you've been an admirer of Spike Lee's movies over the years, you're definitely going to want to check out what he considers the list of essential films. There are 95 movies on this list, and some of them are movies you would totally expect to see, like The Godfather and Raging Bull. And of course, there's a few Kurosawas on there as well. But there's some surprises too, movies like Mad Max and Kung Fu Hustle, if you can believe it. You can find a link to Spike's list on our website, newyorkerradio.org. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com.